Welcome to Conversations for Ali, a podcast sharing the real-life, everyday stories of resilient Australian women from the bush. I'm Ebony Wan. We'll hear how these women have overcome some huge adversities, as well as what tools they use on a daily basis to regain a sense of peace, normality and happiness in their lives again. I've created this podcast in loving memory of my friend, Dr. Alexandra Jane Tapp. This is Conversations for Ali. Today you're going to hear from a very special friend of mine, Virginia Tapscott. I have known Virginia most of her life. Ginny is the younger sister of my friend Ali, who this podcast is made in memory of. I'm four years older than Ginny and I have clear memories of her as a toddler, starting school and now, a few decades on, we're sharing in the huge loss of Alex together. To clear up any confusion, Ginny's maiden name is Tap, but she just happened to marry Reese Tapscott. The similarity with their names was a running joke on their wedding day. This episode discusses some sensitive and adult themes, so please be aware if you have children or young people who might be listening. In this episode, which is part one, Virginia shares with us about her childhood, anxiety and eating disorder at boarding school, meeting Reese and creating their family, her passion for the environment, the sexual abuse that both Alex and Ginny suffered at the hands of a trusted male relative, and an incident that involved Alex having a drug overdose. You will laugh out loud, feel in her pain, and be in awe of the obstacles she has had to overcome. Now more than ever, Virginia is determined to speak the truth. This is part one of Virginia's story. Would you start with telling everybody where you were born and where you grew up? I was born in Narrabri and I grew up on a farm north of Narrabri, just northwest of Narrabri near Balada. Um, it's a mainly a cotton farm, but they've mixed crops and cattle and it, it was, I think it's pretty big by the standard of the local area. So it was, it was great. Like it was a really busy, um, there was always a big team working there. Um, yeah, it's good. And I guess um, farming practices um, sort of 30-ish years ago um, were different to how they are now. And I, I presume there were more families perhaps on the farm than there would be now. So there might have been quite a little community there. Yeah, for sure. There was always people living in um, the workers' cottages with their, if they had a family, their family lived there too. And yeah, a lot, probably more staff. I remember mum and I would go down and, you know, at harvest or busy times with morning teas and lunches and just feeding everybody and yeah. they come for dinner. Yeah, it was, it busy. was really lovely. Yeah. yeah. And so who was in your family? There was mum. My older sister Alex and I on the farm with my uncle, um, which is mum's brother. And we moved there probably when I was about, I think mum said nine months old because um, 
my dad was killed in a car accident just before I was born, um, which and they were living on the Bingra Road. They were living on a farm right near Narrabri. And then mum, after that, dad died, moved in with her mum um, and then had me and then moved in with her brother out to the farm because he was a bachelor. So it kind of worked out in that he could then have somebody, someone, you know, to do essentially what a wife would do, which sounds a bit weird, but like yeah. that, it really worked really, really well yeah. for many years because then later Uncle Bruce obviously got married and we moved out. But yeah. Yeah. That must have been so difficult for your mum um, to be, I guess, heavily pregnant and have a three-year-old and then become widowed and living out of town and having to move in with her brother. Yeah. Oh, and and there's yeah. no time to process that, I guess, when you have a newborn and a toddler. You can't, I can't imagine. Mm. I mean, I know I said at my wedding, I was like, I think I can finally sort of half understand because I have, I, at the time I had a son and I was, ha- I was getting a husband, but like, I just don't think you can, like you just, your whole life would be turned upside down and you'd be, yeah, it would, it would have been so hard. And for her to come out the other side and raise us the way she did, mm. I, I, you think about it more when you get older, um, the extent of what she overcame to mm. raise us the way she did. And you probably... Really Probably having your own children, um, I know for me, makes you reflect on what your parents have done for you and, and how difficult different situations might have been. Oh, and you can see not having a partner, how hard that would have been. Yeah, doing it on your own. Mm. And you know, just the nights when you would have been so tired and just want mm. to go to bed and and not, I mean, she did have help, like her her mum and her mother-in-law were amazing and everybody helped and Uncle Bruce was around. So, but yeah, it was, you, and yeah, you, when you get kids, you get an understanding of what it would be like to be a single parent, but you still can't quite get there because you're not, and you've always got someone where you can just be like, hey, can you do this? Yeah. And so what are your memories of of her growing up? Do you recall missing your dad or thinking that your mum was really resilient um, or was it just the norm? Well, mum was so, so, you know, great for us that I didn't think about it too much, about not having a dad. Like Mm. it was just she was there, she could always help. You know, she was, she had all my, you know, when you're a young kid, like she had all the answers to all of my questions. Um, There was ever anything I wanted to do. She was like, you know, she had a real can-do attitude and would just Mm. be like, oh, I don't know, I wanted to sing and she'd like take me to singing lessons or a ride and she's like, let's go do that. And it was just, she was very, you didn't muck around, just let's do it, whatever you want to do. Yeah. I think when you don't like growing up with a com- not ever knowing dad and him and just being completely absent is different to losing like the way Alex 
lost him and I think but but in the same way I did notice the absence probably going into my teens and then as an adult you kind of get an understanding of what you didn't have and mm. especially now I see Reese with my kids mm. Mm. Um, and what yeah. was your relationship with Alex growing up well because it was just the two of us it it was it had to have been yeah as close as you get and you're 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 out of town so you've only got I mean a lot of the time like we obviously were went to school and we went in to see you guys and stuff but you've only got the other person a lot of the time so it was it was beautiful I mean we fought and we you know made up games and we the bee's knees just did we mainly just did what Alex wanted to do yeah. <laughs> yeah all the time I was that I was there was a bit of an age gap like three and a half years so she knew, had it going on and knew all of the cool stuff to do before I would have even had a clue yeah um and yeah she was she was really she was a lot of fun yeah as a little kid and where did you go to school Oh, I went, I started at Ballada, which was just like Ballada Public, right near the farm, just a 15 minute sort of bus ride in. And then in year five, about halfway through year five, I went into Narrabri, which is our bigger local centre, because there was only one other girl in my class by year five. And mum just made the decision that it's probably not, you know, then you're going into high school and there'll be heaps, you know, there's, it's a lot bigger um, environment again and she I think she just wanted me to go to a more normal sort of classroom size mm. before heading into high school mm. and uh, I was happy to do that because I had all um, my friends from pony camp um, in town at that school and yeah sort of just cruised in there there was some it was a lot of commuting you know 40 an hour in and an hour out but that's what we did yeah and I think because um, we went to primary school together at Ballada Public School and um, you, we were all sort of a big family really and um, my my age group was probably the older kids that you were playing with but we all played together and I guess when I left and Alex left to go to high school and our other friends, yeah, there was a big loss there socially for you probably. That's exactly what happened, yeah. Mm. Now now that you said I remember, because I was friends with a lot of the kids in the year above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, which was lovely. We all, um, you know, had such a great childhood there together. But yeah. It sort of, it came to an end at some point. Yeah. And I think the school did shrink during the time that, from when you would have started to yeah. when I left, it was already that with the farms around, mm. you know, labour reduction on the farms and, just people, you know, those small towns just shrinking as the services sort of close, shops closed and that process did happen like right before our eyes during mm. the time that I was in there. Yeah, that's and right. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like I, I can I, remember a shop that closed and everything. Yeah, yeah. And we had a lot of families coming and going who were labouring families who would travel around with the seasons and things like that and, it did start to stop then and now it is almost non-existent. Yeah, that's mm. right. And so where did you go to high school? And then I started in Narrabri at the high school <clears throat> there for two years. 
which was great. I think I was commuting for some of that from the farm, but my uncle got married during that time and we moved into um, just a little sort of hobby farm just outside of town um, when I was about 14. And so I do remember catching the bus into the high school then um, and then I went to boarding school in year nine. And where and, was um, that at? Tamworth, Carrossi. And that was wonderful. I've met my friends for life there. I, I'm still really close to those girls, closer to those girls than any other, you know, like uni or anything. And um, and it was such a, I mean, I look back on the Carrossi years really fondly but it was also that was when I I really like I developed my eating disorder and I think the pressures of life that I wasn't able to cope with started happening so it's about it's mixed feelings about it um and I my anxiety really came out um in late high school um and I was you know started getting treated for that and but all the while, like, I had these beautiful girls who are still my best friends and, and we did have really fun times. So, yeah, I look back on that um, a bit. Yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bit sort of, of experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And was Alex at Carossi ahead of you by that point? But she left oh. just as I – we never had overlap there at Carossi. Okay. So um, I was a bit devastated about but and and because she when she first went to Carrossi, I was still out at Koi One, and I was mm. so lonely and so jealous that she'd, the, which Koi One's the farm that she'd been out that like she was this you know off doing really cool things and I was still at home. Yeah. What were the pressures that you were feeling at at boarding school? Do you think? Well, it was just academically. Um, <clears throat> And I suppose in hindsight, there was probably some of the anxiety from our childhood sexual abuse that I still wasn't recognising at that point. Um, So I couldn't identify where it was kind of like just a feeling of disgust with yourself Mm. that you couldn't ever place and I didn't know why I felt like a disgusting person and I think I was looking for control and also losing weight which I was never you know a really big person it just made me feel a little like less disgusting and that's the only way I can describe it it yeah it gave me a sense of control and I think childhood sexual abuse leaves you with this sense of not having control over like what's happening to you Mm. and and yeah and just this layer of dirt on your skin because you don't have the words or the understanding as a child to understand that what's happened to you was totally not your fault and totally wrong and so you do feel somehow complicit until you're able to really take those memories out examine them understand it for what it is and then forgive, like, you know, forgive yourself. And I don't think, I think I'll always just have that gross feeling, even though I know that, you know, logically everything 
I've been through it and I don't suppress the memory anymore. I don't know if I'll ever <clears throat> get rid of that, but it's easier to bear knowing that that's just not knowing why you feel that way. So, yeah. And I think when you've already got all this stuff going on inside and then you have that life sort of ups the ante with like academically, you know, when you're at high school and that's the first big thing where people are like, you know, this is really important. Like, don't screw this up. Do your best. And I think that added layer of and that's when it just all just got too much to bear. Yeah. And who recognised that there might be a problem with anxiety or um, depression or or some sort of mental health issue there? Well, I ended up going to the doctor because I was peeing a lot, just going like going to the toilet all the time, and that's part of it. That's part of the anxiety. It's like um, like a nervous pee. Mm. I thought it was something to do, you know, something medically like wrong mm. anyway so I get into this amazing woman this GP Dr Bron in Tamworth um at the time and she just picked me like a dirty nose <laughs> she had any private school girls come to her before in my exact condition of being underweight you know exhibiting sort of anxious tendencies um and she really just sort of started to <sighs> not drill down, like not in a pressuring way, but really just quizzed me about everything that was going on with my, what I was eating and how much I was exercising. And, and I, and she, like, she really just held up reality for me and let me have a look at it. And I could see that what she was saying was true. Um, And then I just had to go with her on what she was saying because I didn't know and I knew that what I was doing wasn't really working like I was I I guess I knew that I was really struggling and unhappy and the things that I was doing to make myself feel better weren't weren't working so I was going to go with her on that and yeah that was medication like sertraline or something it's an antidepressant um this would have been in year 11 and uh psychologist like therapy and just coming back to her to make sure like the weight gain sort of happened to you know like hold you accountable to actually not losing more weight and Mm. and yeah and the those I mean medication for me at the time was a real game changer because you're not drinking alcohol um in I wasn't drinking alcohol in school I I was doing everything right. Like I was eating well because that was part of my anxiety disorder. I did exercise. So I was getting the benefits from that. And then we threw in the medication and the therapy. And I remember those. I just remember, it sounds so cliche, but like you could, everything just, I remember it being sunny again. Like, yeah. And you're not, you're not just walking around like I could remember I could have proper conversations with people because I wasn't so in my own head anymore that I could listen to what they were saying and you know you really lose when you're that anxious and you're worrying that much about what you how what your weight is and what you're eating it's very hard to just have a conversation with someone because you've got that much head noise that you're not really picking up on it's like you're trying to two conversations at the same time Mm. and yeah just that feeling that that it's 
not not doomsday if today you don't get to go for a run or you know if you have dessert at dinner tonight and that I and I, I'm not exaggerating like it it just crept up on me like how how sad it really was mm. <clears throat> um, and so was the eating disorder labeled with anything did you did you have a diagnosis around that it was ednos, which is eating disorder not otherwise specified. So they're picking ah. you up before you're anorexic. Yep. So you don't meet the BMI for an anorexic, oh, anorexia nervosa, whatever they call it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know where that would have ended up. Yeah. But whether I would have ever really gotten there or. Yeah. Um, and did your and friends I'm, so I'm rec- Sorry, Jin. Did your friends recognise um, that there was a problem around that area? Yeah, they they did. Um, nobody really know what to do with this information. Mm. And I was so like, I, I was, I guess I was a bit of a, like, I'm sort of a, I'm not really told by other people what to do. Mm. And I was really in high school either. I just felt like my friends felt like they couldn't sort of, say yeah and if they if they did which they may have and I just don't remember I would have been like you don't you don't you don't know yeah um I've got this yeah everyone yeah. else eats much. You yeah know, I'm not eating enough yeah I would have just put it back on them or because yeah. when you're in that mindset you do sort of think you know what you're doing mm. um and, and did your I, mum know about it well mum could see that I was very thin and that you could see like all the bones in my back and I I guess I sort of did I sort of did fool everyone a little bit mm. in just being like I know what I'm doing and I was and I was you know I could run really long distances I guess in some ways I sort of just tried to hide that I was really sad and to sort of give the impression that I was really nailing it and mum and Alex did I think they probably did hit me up a few times and I just would have just would have like, yeah, as I said to you about my school friends, like I was in a space where I would have just, it it did really take the doctor to be like, I sort of believed her because she was a medical professional, I guess. I think in, in the beginning though, I really only started to put on weight to get her off my back. It was another part of me being like, okay, well, if you say I have to do it this way, then I'll do it this way. And I'll, you know, but I don't know, I, maybe I fully didn't fully believe her until it got further down the track. But, mm. yeah, mum and mum, I suppose mum looks back on that and she she doesn't really know, you know, what she was doing. But, yeah, people who have eating disorders and are, are experiencing mental health issues for the first time as a young adult, it's it's very, you know, it's very new to everybody and it's your first sort of big, struggle and um and I think yeah and mum didn't have you know she's it's never happened to her before either like having children who are going through this and all you and they and this is still the recommendation you can't really tell them what to do all Mm. you can do is love them Mm. and support and and be supportive so that when they do feel ready that they're ready to you know to have a bit of a rest and give themselves a break and not be doing this anymore that they that they then reach out to you mm. and I think that's probably what mum was trying to do um 
and so throughout other challenges that have popped up in your life as you've grown into an adult, has this eating disorder been something you've got to check in with or is that just something that has stayed in your past and you don't have a problem with that anymore? How does that work? I oh, I think it'll always be there. Um, I think when I'm really, the chips are down and I'm stressed, I do sort of still see that as a control mm. and like, well, I won't mm. feel worse. I won't let myself feel worse about today by overeating because that will make me feel even worse. Yeah. It's not um, like the health issue that it was in high school where you, you stop menstruating, you, your bone densities at, you know, starts to be affected. Um, your cognition like is affected by not having enough nutrients. Like, I forget what it's called. Um, I'm pro- yeah, I'm probably just more anal about food now. Yeah, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I, I do. And exercise will always be a part of my life, but it's not to the point where um, I did notice. I think they had one sort of a relapse in at uni because I I was on I've been I was on and off medication after high school. Um, and then I'd, and then obviously when you turn 18 and <clears throat> you go to college and you start drinking heavily and I, I had a relapse where I, I went, um, I sort of went back on medication and um, I think there was somewhere in there, I can just see from photos that something must have been going on where I, I got quite slim again and I, I, I was using sort of exercise and, and control over food to feel less stressed Mm. Um, but it's never really been the issue that it was in high school because I think I can really see it for what it is Mm. because I did learn from that Mm. that that is not control over food to that extent is not how you you know deal with issues in your life Mm. you've got to look at constructive ways to um, make yourself feel more calm or Mm. you know feel 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 more positive about yourself yeah um and so for those who might not know Alex um she worked really hard at school and and got into veterinary science and ended up being a really successful equine vet um did her aspirations or success at school and uni add any pressure to you or was that a separate Thing? like did you feel that you had to achieve like she was achieving I don't think so I felt like when whatever Alex did made me it maybe it maybe did in some ways that I didn't really recognize but I just remember to see like how much she excelled at school and you know hurt that she did get into vet made me see that you know through really hard work this is what you can do mm. I knew it was possible but Alex and I really never had that competitiveness. No. Or at least I I I don't really remember that being a no. thing. I think we were just that three and a half years apart is enough distance where you, you sort of you're looking up to them. You're not seeing yourself on the same no. level. You can do your own and thing. I, yeah. Mm. And I, all I remember is just being like, wow, she's and I I I'm I'm not as book smart as Alex was. Like I don't know if you know, genetic or if you, she just could knuckle down more than me. But, yeah, she was 
she was the brighter one. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so what were your aspirations as you were heading to the end of your high schooling years and getting yourself well again and that all sorted? Did you have goals for the year after school or what were you wanting to do? Well, I, I just wanted to go straight to uni. I don't know. I never didn't really entertain the idea of doing anything else too much. I mean, in hindsight, my friends did fun things in their gap year and like I've I think it's a great idea, but I just, I think I was trying to get to where Alex was mm. and do what he was doing. And I hadn't been able to do that because when I got to high school in Narrabri, she'd already gone to Carrossi. And then when I went to Carrossi, she'd already gone to uni. So we were finally at the same, um, you know, institution. So I, I went straight to uni and I, I don't really remember wanting to do anything but journalism. Um, I remember growing up on the farm and just the news being a, big deal um within the household and the radio being you know the news came on the radio everyone shh um (laughs) and I wanted that person with that delivering that information I guess and then that combined with there was a series of chick flicks that came that started popping up when I would have been at my really impressionable teens about these chicks that were hot and worked at magazines and they were really cool and <laughs> I wanted to be them too. Oh, that's so funny. So, so did you have to work hard in your HSC to get the marks you would need to do journalism? Oh, I, I can't really remember what the entry-level mark would have been. I And we've I've always just been like I, I don't want to do anything less than my best and mm. there is pressure in that in knowing that, you are in pushing yourself as much as you know that you can do like I didn't want to go through the HSC not and not have given it my absolute and get a mark that I knew wasn't my best like the mark I got in my HSC I could not have I could not have done any better than that yeah that was it that was all I had and I love that I love that and I can take that with me and I know that the HSC is not the end of the world but the HSC is important in that it's your first big thing where you have to apply yourself and you have to learn that if you don't put in the work you don't like you might not get um the results that you're after so Mm. it's a good that's what I see the end of high school as a good um it's a good thing like I, I yeah the marks people can get around that um while it was really important to me but I don't think I needed what I got to get into journalism yeah and so where did you go to uni? Uh, that uh, we went, I went straight to the University of Queensland um, and, and, and went, got accepted into the uh, selective college there, not because of me, but because my sister had and they had a sibling rule where, if, yeah, if your sibling goes to that college, then all of the siblings are then accepted into that college. Um, which was made, which was great because John's was, um, it was, it was a really lovely place and you were among, um, there was just a really great crowd and I remember that time mm. really fondly. So was Alex living there then when you came along or she'd moved on again? Yes, she yeah. moved out. She was yeah. still at the uni. Yeah. Um, I had to take her lunches when she was studying. Um, so I would take an extra lunch from the the college thing for her um but she wasn't living there anymore on like yeah residentially on on campus she was had moved out with some friends 
or she would have liked that because she didn't have to think about cooking or spend any money on food. Yeah. That's a dream situation. I liked to do it because I, I, journalism was, it it wasn't as full on as other degrees. Mm. So I did have a, I did have that extra, I could do things like that. So how many years were you both living in Brisbane together? Oh, I can't quite remember, two or three. Mm. And did you see each other much? Yeah. Yep. We did. And I guess you'd probably share the car ride home to Narrabri to see your mum or something? Yeah, we did mm-hmm. that a few times. Oh, I thought you were going to say share the cab ride home uh, to... <laughs> from <laughs> the we pub. We did that too. <laughs> yeah. Or um, like Alex called me and oh, have both had too much to drink and she'd be like, I've lost... I've lost my my whole bag and my wallet and all my cards. And I remember one time getting a cab back to her house and she'd made the taxi man stay there. And I opened the door and it was on the floor of the taxi, all of her stuff. And I, and I was just like, well, what was, A, what was the taxi driver doing? But B, here you go. Here's all your stuff. That's so funny. Like, I'm not, I'm not that responsible, but yeah, she, I mean, you know what, how it is. Yeah. And, I'm sure she helped me out a few times yeah. too with like getting home and not having money for the cab and yeah, because um, she obviously because she was still at uni she we lived in the same suburb of Brisbane, mm. St Lucia. Mm. They would always cabs back there and go out together. And... Yeah, what a special time. Um, so we haven't touched m- much on this, but I know horses were a big part of your upbringing and and your mum was very passionate about them and they were always in your life. So um, what happened when you both went away to uni? Did did the the lifestyle that horses bring stay with you or did you have to leave that for a while? Oh, I really left it and I probably haven't really ever gone back to what that was. I mean, that was beautiful on the farm, uh, yeah. just going for – you know, riding horses for hours, mustering, um, taking picnics. Mm. Uh, in hindsight, you know, it's it's great for kids to get outdoors for that length of time and not be looking at a screen and be doing something that's physically active, like that's mm. ideal. It would have, you know, helped us in so many ways developmentally. Um and I do look back on that really fondly. I think I will get back to horses one day, but I just, I can't. Mum mum helped me to do some polo cross carnivals in late high school, keep keep um, riding competitively like she would ride my horse while I was away at school or uni and then I'd come home and have a carnival. Um, but then I, and when I left uni, oh, well, I think probably sooner than that. Really, when I left school, that sort of finished up. Mm. And I guess the love obviously stayed with Alex, though, because she she made a career out of working with horses. Yes. Yeah. And we, mum was always so respectful of animals and she was always very concerned with their welfare. And that's, I mean, pretty, that's good. Um, but, I mean, and you would hope that that was standard with people, but unfortunately it isn't. And I think that that really rubbed off on Alex as well in making, in wanting to find relief for animals. And I think she often toyed with the idea of doing the same for humans. Um, But I think just our early exposure to so 
many animals and wildlife and especially horses really she knew that she she was she's a great horsewoman you know to able to read them um and you only get that through so much exposure to that animal and to be able to read them and really well the way she could um definitely definitely played a role in her wanting to be um to treat them Mm, that's so nice um so when you finished uni what was the next move for you um when I was finishing uni and I think I lived in Brisbane for a little while after I finished I hung around uh at the ABC a fair bit and I think that's how a lot of journalists would tell you they get their jobs um I just hung around asked them if I could come in and work for free and then yeah they eventually said that I could do a week training off my own bat if I went to Toowoomba went out to Toowoomba for a week so I stayed with a friend who lived in Toowoomba for a week and did my followed this other reporter around and then they gave me like a um a three-month like they needed someone out at Mount Isa because they had someone else finishing up and so they they often just put some, I forget what the name is, but they'll just put someone in the role and then they'll advertise for the job, you know, when they've got all this ducks in a row and everything sorted out. So I went out there just on this sort of placement um, to fill in and mum helped me. So we drove from one corner of Queensland to the other. Mum, mum and I did it over a few days and I moved like the contents of my room in that share house in this Toyota Corolla tiny little thing and my rat, my pet rat and everything, we all went. And then I did that three-month stint in Mount Isa and it's still the most amazing. It's the mo- it's a great job to just be able to, you know, hoon around in the work car with a microphone and talk to people about their lives. And that's what I did and it's mm. still what I do. But um, it was so great. And I when that job came up, I was, you know, I would have been devastated if I didn't get it, um, the permanent sort of role that they advertised. And I did. Um, luckily. So then I stayed on there for about two years mm. just doing that. And to see the North. was that was that for the ABC radio? Yeah. 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 And so I was their sort of reporter. Their what, sorry, Jim? Rural reporter. Oh, okay. Um yeah. and so how far is Mount Isa from Narrabri? I think it's like eighteen hundred kilometers. Yeah. So did you <laughs> ever drive that or did you fly it mostly? I mostly flew. But we did drive a few times. Mm. Um, and so so your mum was always in Narrabri, um, you know, wherever you were, she was always still in Narrabri. Um, and where was Alex in that time and, and were you able to stay in touch and how did that distance affect your relationship, if at all? Well, Alex, I believe at that time she like one of her first jobs she hopped on a plane and went to New Zealand mm. and did an amazing job over there and stayed there for a while and we were all sort of I was you know I was really in awe of her like going off to a different country I know it's over the ditch it's about as close to Australia as you get but it's still it's still a an impressive thing to just pack up and go and start a new job in a new country and she did that and Oh, I think we're both terrible at keeping in touch. And our relationship was always such a given growing up. Like they were just, and then I think as we moved into our adult lives, we probably let ourselves down a bit there in that we didn't, because we'd never had to make an effort to 
be around each other. We we did lose lose out a bit there. Mm. Um, and I'm like I'm terrible at calling all of my friends, my mum, anyone. So um, we did we did keep in touch, and whenever we got back together, it was you know it's like the same. No but, time had passed. And yeah, you just you, you're living so far apart. We always yeah. were. And but I I know your mum has always kept in close contact with you both. So probably you knew that if something was up or whatever, your mum would tell you that, oh, Alex needs this or vice versa. So she was sort yeah. of the constant in that relationship as most parents oh, are. Mm. I did get a lot. I probably did get a lot of, yeah, mum being yeah. like, well, Alex is doing this. And, yeah, you didn't need um, to check in as much. And so did you have any relationships at uni or when you went to Mount Isa? I did. And the major ones I can remember uh um this first guy that I was probably I fell really in love with at university I'm gonna leave names out (laughs) good (laughs) Um, and that was just a real whirlwind and I was really heavily into that and um he was at the Gold Coast and I used to catch the train and go over to the Gold Coast all the time and it it's kind of sad in a way because it really took me away from that college uni life and those people that had, was so much fun because he wasn't at college or uni. He was over at the Gold Coast. I think he was at uni at the Gold Coast. But um, So that was full on. Um, he ended up moving to Brisbane and we continued that relationship. He was a lot older than me. He was like 10 years older than me. And then I think I have that preference for older men because for lack of having a dad. I don't mm. know. I think that's it. Mm. And I'm always looking for that sort of dad, which sounds a bit weird, but I think that that's what it is. Yeah. And anyway, just got to the point where I could see myself at parties around all people my own age. And then I could see he was lovely to me. He never treated like he was, we, he was a lovely guy to me. And I could just see that thought I maybe wanted to be with someone who was more at my stage in life Mm. and that was really hard like that was really hard that was probably my first big breakup where I I loved somebody and I knew that I was going to hurt them really badly Mm. um and that came for me too you know subsequently Mm. where I was Mm. really in love and they didn't want to continue the relationship either um and, um, and then while I was at uni I met another I started going out with this other guy, but um, I guess I wasn't, it maybe was at a time where I was a bit insecure. I was feeling probably insecure about myself as a whole. And you can, looking back, you can see the relationships where when you aren't in a good place, you don't, you don't bring a really nice, like to, you're not secure enough almost to be in a relationship and you lean on them too much and you're too needy mm. and you leave like, 46 missed calls on their phone and you think that just got too much for him <laughs> and it was the right thing to do like it wasn't it wasn't like him sort of finishing up that relationship was the right thing for me at that time like mm. I did not needed to go away and sort myself out and get some self-respect and find something which in in it which eventually was my job where I, I found a real sense of self-worth independent of you know, any man. Yeah. That was my relationship where I just annoyed him and got too neat. Well, at least you know. <laughs> How did you meet? 
in me. Well, Reese was just at a Christmas party when I went home from Mount Isa one year. And he was working in um, Catherine in the Northern Territory, but he was home for Christmas as well. You met, you met in Narrabri, do you mean? Yeah. Yeah, we were yeah. both home in Narrabri on holidays. And, yeah, we just, like, we just got talking at this party and we hooked up, like, as in kissing. And nothing happened that night except I went home to stay at his house because it was right close to the party. And I don't know where we must have walked through the mud. And I walked mud all through his mother's house, all over her carpets. And the next day I was just like, oh, my goodness, like that is just the worst outcome. Anyway, I was like, well, if, you know, if he wants to catch up with me again, he'll have to sort that out. Anyway, and she does we, have a very nice up. house. Yeah. And um, we did catch up at another Christmas party, you know, that time of year. It's very social. And, yeah. Um, and then he got my number there. And then Christmas happened and it was, you know, all I went to the beach for my holiday and then I went back to work. And I remember getting off the plane in Mount Isa and having um, – and I was waiting for my bag to come off the um, plane and he called me. Ah. Oh. Didn't message a lot. He called and and it was just it just worked. We just yeah. chatted easily and it was fun. So can you remember how far Catherine is from Mount Isa? It's twelve hundred kilometers. Mm. Yeah. And what was he doing there in Catherine? He was he was working as an electrician, and I we did used to like obviously we did a um, bit of long distance there where oh, I would drive to Catherine or he would drive to Mount Isa and. I would get up, <clears throat> do my radio show at like 6.15 on a Friday morning and then um, basically just hook off after that at like 7 a.m. I don't know what I told my work, my mm-hmm. employer, because I was supposed to work till like midday. Ah. But I just used to sort out the program for next week. File, I must have just filed something, I don't know where, filed a story and just took off. And um, would drive all the way to um, Catherine on a Friday and had to learn how to use a jerry can because my car was so small and the fuel stations are so far apart and you're just driving through the middle of nowhere. Wow. Is this still in the Corolla? Yeah. And (laughs) just with my rat in the car and just going. And (laughs) one time, when I first was trying to learn how to, on my first journey, I pulled up in the night time like it was late I was nearly there but I needed to fill my put some more fuel in the tank and I'd never used a jerry can before and I didn't pop the release valve to allow the fuel to flow out yeah and so I was standing there at the in the dark in the middle of the territory in a dress and um trying to pour this fuel into my car and um anyway the pressure built up and I just slipped and the fuel the nozzle came out and poured all over me, all over my bits. Oh, my gosh. I don't know gosh. if you've ever had fuel on your bits, but it actually really burns. And so I had to, like, I threw this dress off. I was naked and I had this water bottle in the front of the car and I was just pouring it all over my area and eventually it stopped um, burning. And I was like, the only thing worse would be if a truck came right now and then I could hear in the distance there's a truck coming out. I'm naked on the side of the road and I just chucked jerry can. I, I only had enough 
fuel. Like, I mean, I would have anyway. And I just jumped in the car. My work phone was on the roof of the car. <gasps> I, it fell. I left. I left it there. No. Like, and um, and I just hooked it into this place. I think it's called Mataranka. And I was, I pulled up there at eight p.m. And that was when he closed his servo. And I was like, <gasps> excuse me. So I had to pull up before I got there to get a new some clothes on. Yeah. And then I, I rolled in there, and I was, I wouldn't have made it to Catherine if he mm. was closed. I would have fuel and I was like excuse me sir can you please I need some fuel and he let me and he sort of served me just before he finished up and anyway so it was so it was so far and we were so dumb but we must have been really in love because Mm. we did it Mm. over and over um can we just touch base on the rat for a minute tell us what the rat's name was and how how did he or she come to be in your life and what was the significance of that? Well, I got Errol while I was at uni when I moved into out of college just into a share house because I we'd always had dogs on the farm and animals and I just felt that absence, I guess, really keenly and I knew that I couldn't have a dog in a tiny share house. And so I just got a rat and um, rats are really friendly, dog-like um, little animals and um yeah she was she was so cool and she was a, yeah she was beautiful she was just always there and scampering around and oh my I'm re- still really good friends with my roommate to this day but she could not handle how I just let Errol run all through the house and like she used to chew, chew Hannah's yoga mat and uh, I don't know how these people put up with me like yeah, that's yeah. a housemate from hell someone who has a rat that she lets on the loose and choose your yoga mat yeah if someone did that to me now I'd get them out <laughs> very high maintenance um, I'm going to have a wedding next month so oh. I just have been surrounded by such like lovely people who you know just take me as I am obviously yeah are you buying her a yoga mat for her wedding <laughs> <laughs> I should yeah um and how did Reese um, adapt to Errol was that all right yeah I think in the end he could see that she was special to me mm. like he wasn't obviously it's like a bit weird this <laughs> chick who has but he could see well one time when I took her to his house he had rat, he actually had rat bait all out and he was like don't let it out here because she'll get the rat bait anyway which I did let her out I don't know why I was just like she won't eat that like it's gross anyway and then we could hear this like Crunch, 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 crunch. Oh no! Anyway, no, she's no. around the back eating the rat bait, <clears throat> but she she didn't seem to get sick or anything. But I had her like on close observation because yeah. I caught her, must have caught her on her first pellet. Yeah, you probably had to ring Doctor Alex to see how to get this rat. I would have messaged through. Alex. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I presume you and Reese at some point moved to the same town to be together. Well, Reese moved to Mount Isa. Okay. And then he got a job in the mines there, in the lead smelter. And we had a lovely, it was great, really worked. And we had a really nice group of friends. Mount Isa is a great town for young people because there's a lot of young people there. It's quite transient, um, you know, young people just cutting their teeth in a, in a job, like they're getting their miles, their experience um, before they try and, I guess, move somewhere else or move to where they really want to work. Mm. And that was too, like, I wasn't out there really by choice. Mm. Uh, oh, well, I 
but you know it wasn't my it was a long way from my hometown and it wasn't really where I wanted to end up mm. and we had a beautiful time there and um Errol only got out of the house once when ran down the street moved in with some other people I put dropped all the letters in letterboxes and someone called me and said hey I've got your rat and I was just like <laughs> It was so distressing that mum, that was mum's idea. Well, you'll just have to let a drop that you've got a missing rat. Yeah. And I was like, I was at work and I was crying and I was printing off these missing rat posters and found her again. Thank goodness. And um, yeah, in the end, we just, we decided that it was, it was too far from Narrabri. Like we're spending our life savings on air tickets and we just, um, we saw an opportunity to move home. I got a job with the local paper and that's what we did. Okay. And so what did Reese do when you came back if you're at the newspaper? He went back to being an electrician, which he was always in Mount Isa, but just like he finished up with the lead smelter there and which is probably for the best because you I don't know, you they they have to get regular blood tests, their exposure to lead and stuff mm. is not good. Um, so it probably wasn't something he wanted to be doing long term anyway. And he just started doing like residential electric electrical work with his yeah. his business that he had started in Mount Isa. Mm-hmm. In Catherine, sorry. Yeah. And um how long, I guess, after you'd moved to Narrabri did he propose? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember. Um we'd probably not too been long. there no, not probably six months, a couple of months. And can you tell us about the proposal? Well, um, I was a bit under the weather, but I think he'd been trying for a while and he'd asked my mum and he sort of just wanted to do it. And we later found out that I was actually pregnant at the time, um, which is probably why I was un- under the weather. Yeah. Anyway, so I was just on the couch and he just came over and he just sat on the couch and he gave me a kinder surprise and I was just like, Oh, that's good. At least, at least I can have some chocolate. Anyway, so I ate my Kinder Surprise, and then I opened the thing in the the little um pack plastic container that comes in the middle, and there was a ring in there, and I was like, oh, that's this is some sort of like frozen theme Kinder Surprise. I don't know why are there jewels in here. It was only it was actually just a plain rose gold band, but I I did not. It took me ages to figure out what was happening because he'd mm. expertly broken the egg open and then like sort of put it back together and it must have melted a bit or something to melt back together and I didn't could I didn't realize it had been tampered with at all. <laughs> but oh, I don't know, I was not paying attention. And anyway, and then I sort of said to him, I was like, "Is this for this finger?" And I held up my ring finger, and he was like, "Yeah." And I was like, well, you have to ask me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. And so how long after that um, did you find out you were pregnant then? Oh, gosh, I can't quite remember the time scale because I um, oh, would have been, it would have been a month or so. I, think, I, I feel like it was about 10 days actually, but I could be oh. wrong. Yeah, I think it was soon. There, was, there seemed to be too question. significant milestones oh, okay. were achieved in a very short <laughs> time because in between that we went to Hong Kong oh no I don't know we'd been in Hong Kong yeah I can't remember and I thought that I had some sort of avian influenza or That's swine right. flu or whatever and I went to the doctor and I was just like you know 
we've got to, we've got to find out what's wrong with me. And she was like, did, you know, did all the tests. And she's like, well, you're pregnant. So that's first start. And I was like, well, I just remember sort of questioning her on that. Like, well, it's, I can't be. So what else? Like, I'm not. So is there something else? Yeah. And she was like, well, you are. And I was just shaking all over. And I drove <laughs> out to where my husband and my his brother were building our container home. And I'm like, they shake. I'm still shaking. And I just like told reason he was great Reese was must have he was born he was born for that news I guess and he yeah. just did not bat an eyelid and held my hand and we kept going yeah but um, I was really shaken up mm. uh, and I guess he didn't have a ring with a stone probably at that point because it turns out that Reese's related to the very well-known jeweler Jan Logan so he had greater greater ideas in motion I suppose that's right so it was beautiful we ended up getting yeah my ring made uh Jan made it to Mm. what I wanted Mm. Uh, and we used my band is what he gave me on my on the wedding day so I took once I got my ring with the rock in it um yeah I took the band off and he gave that to me on my wedding day and so um, did you have your baby before you were married? Yes. Yep. Oscar was not months old at our wedding. Yeah. Okay. We put the wedding back a year. Yeah. And how was your pregnancy with him? Um, you know, apart from that really early sort of me feeling un- unwell, I, I sort of, I didn't, I, I didn't ever vomit. I sort of sailed through pretty well. And then, um, Towards the end, things started to unravel and I had no idea what I was doing. I was in a rural town um, where, you know, I guess the monitoring of my condition was sort of questionable and the communication between the hospital and my GP got a bit muddled in the end. Um, So in the end, I ended up with a very advanced um, preeclampsia, in the very advanced stages of preeclampsia. Um, and was in Tamworth base and was they were trying to induce me and trying to get my what happens with preeclampsia in the in the last weeks I was just like I felt very unwell I felt like my legs were lead Um, I was just trying to lie down all the time I just thought that maybe that's what the end of pregnancy is like like Mm. it just gets really Mm. hard and uncomfortable and it does but I knew there was something wrong and and they did start to get some markers of preeclampsia in uh, my regular checkups. But, yeah, something unlucky happened where just the correct action wasn't taken when it should have been. And so, I, yeah, I was r- sort of rushed over to Tamworth and they were trying to induce me and trying to get my blood pressure to settle down. It was all very stressful and, in hindsight, traumatic, you know, introduction to childbirth and kids and um in the end my organs started failing and they were just worried that I'd have seizures um and so they did a cesarean Mm. and then Oscar wasn't very well and he was in the special care nursery and I was on a drip to prevent like the the smooth muscle from um um, having trouble like to keep my heart going and keep all my vital organs functioning 
um, the way they should have been to prevent the major seizure event that's really deadly. And mm. so I, the first I saw my son was um, in a photo and which was Oscar. And it, yeah, it was, it was really not, not ideal, no. not what you want. It's a lot of um, re- mental recovery that mm. we, we were in, you know, in line for after that. And it was just, everything was hard. Like feeding was all sorts of difficult and um, I recovery and mastitis and I've got a Caesar scar and yeah, I mm. guess it was just, it's the, you know, birth can go really, really well and it can go really, really not well. And mm. um, first experience of that was pretty not well. Yeah, and with your first baby, which is hard enough as it is, let alone these huge life-threatening issues. Yeah. yeah. Um, you don't really allow yourself at the time to, you know, see that for what it is and allow no. yourself to be really shell-shocked because you've got this baby that you're trying to keep going. And so it was 18 months actually before I finally picked up the phone and was like, I think I need some therapy over this. Like I've really got to really got to deal with because I was pregnant again and I my sister-in-law had her baby by cesarean in Tamworth at the time and I was so anxious and it wasn't even me and I was like okay I think there's some unresolved issues here around birth and I really need to sort my stuff out because I didn't want another cesarean and I wanted to try and have Elkie you know with not have to go to theatre and so yeah we did a lot of work I did a lot of work with the psychologist during that pregnancy. Well, how long did you have therapy for after Oscar was born? Oh, well, after you realised that there, there might be a problem there? Um, well, for the duration. Well, I didn't. I only saw someone a couple of times after Oscar was born. It sort of got put in that too hard basket and then the lady I had been seeing left town, relocated, and um, I just never found anybody else. And I guess I was suppressing, like I'd put that in a box and I sort of thought that I was I was trying to like be optimistic and trying to, you know, put that behind you. And it was, well, then at six weeks he got that um, really dangerous vi- um, virus. It was a um, viral meningitis. It's called parechovirus. It was very new to Australia at the time. And um that happened when he was six weeks old and mm. we were back in Tamworth and he was a really, really sick newborn baby. And I, I I always see the triage now whenever I'm in hospitals of like, and they just, when you, when you step into hospital with a, with a baby that old, that's got a temperature, everyone gets out of the way. Like they just, they shot me, they, we shot straight through to see a doctor next minute like Oscar was on a drip and I don't know if you've ever seen someone try and put a you know needle in a baby's vein like that big it was a big deal and then we were in the ambulance to go back to Tamworth anyway so that was I mean I'm not even really remembering that now like that Mm. is me just trying to put that stuff somewhere where I don't have to deal with it Mm. and again we thought you know there was a chance that we could lose him and babies do die from that virus really readily um so anyway, he was he got checkups from uh, for his recovery from that because it can lead to brain damage for until he was three. Yeah, um, we were going to just monitor him, and um, he seems really well now, and he seems you know to have made a full recovery. So, yeah, um, that's good. How but amazing! When I, 
when I started therapy again, when I was pregnant with Elkie, I did that for the pretty much the duration of that pregnancy, so nine months. Mm. Went into John Hunter and had her like vaginally. I'm not going to say naturally because I had a lot of help. <laughs> like we ended up with an epidural and forceps and um, the works. Yeah. Uh, and but but still, like I think I had put in, you know, I had put a lot of work into, you know, having a different experience. And I had in my birth plan, I had put a lot. I was ready for a cesarean too, like, and I was ready to not see that as a failure and to not Mm. be disappointed in that and to have an idea of how that would happen as well Mm. and we just were in the care of some amazing um medical staff and um yeah they got her safely out my vagina into my arms and that was what I needed and I got a lot of um I got a lot of healing from that experience and 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 Elkie was just like straight on the boob you could have put her on a garden hose like she and she thrived and yeah so it was yeah it was a great a very different experience <clears throat> yeah um and so did you get preeclampsia with her as well I did but I it didn't it was it was called um it was only ever just um pregnancy induced hypertension it was okay. it never preeclampsia I suppose you were become, yeah I was I induced yeah. And you were closely monitored probably because of what had happened with Oscar. And I sort of needed to go to John Hunter because I knew that they could do a lot more for me if things did go wrong in the end, which they did. Yeah. Um, because when you're, tr- when you're attempting a vaginal birth after you've had a cesarean, they don't like to induce you. Mm. And I thought there was a likely, it was likely that they would have to induce me because of, you know, the chance that I would get pregnancy again and they'd have to act. Mm. And that's what happened in the end. And they were like, just told me about the risks that that are increased when you, and I just felt that if I was going to, you know, try to avoid, um, you know, major surgery anywhere, I would do it at John Hunter. And and they were really supportive of that. Yeah. Good on you. Um, Now you touched earlier on Reese was building a container, a a house out of a shipping container. Can you tell us about yeah. that project and, and what that period in your life, um, sort of how that has affected you and, and what you got out of that and what that looked like? Well, I learned that um, my husband's a really talented man who can do a lot of things. Like, he, well, he and his brother built that house um, out of containers. So, and I, like a lot of recycled material, obviously. And um, it was we uh it was love like beautiful and we still we, we still own that we don't live there anymore but um we hope to go back there one day it's a really special um that's where we bought brought Oscar home to and um in the end Reese you know we loved it because it was ours and everything in it we decided you know what how it went and what it looked like and um in the end my husband also um hooked it up so it was off grid mm. um we, well, it was always off grid, um, but in the beginning it was on a generator because we hadn't worked out how to set up. Like we, we had to get all the batteries and um, get the solar panels and get all that set up. And we, d- we did do that in the end and it was amazing to have your whole house running off the off the sun. And that really um, 
in the um, beginning was out of necessity because it was the cost to get the power lines to that house was prohibitive. Uh, but we always said so in the very early stages, we knew that it would be off grid and that we'd do solar. Um, but that kind of led to my, you know, a, you really understand the opportunity of and how through some, you know, simple changes or like, you know, just through dedication, you can um, live in a way that is very, uh, like, very much more gentle for the, the planet. And that was sort of my introduction to that was being able to live in a house that was powered by the sun, having my kids come along where, and and to really start to think about, you know, the next hundred years beyond me, because they force you to do that. They force you to consider the future. And that was where that all started. And I just really went over everything in our lives with a fine tooth comb really to see what else we could do to be more gentle about the way we were living. And what sort of things did you change in your family's life to um, try and make a positive impact on the environment? Well, I, my main areas that I was focusing on at the time were um, consumption, really lowering your consumption, waste, trying to lower the amount that you're putting into landfill um, and water, just trying to conserve water. And, you know, I just, and I, that's all of those things have stuck with me to that day. I, I went to great lengths to <clears throat> reduce our waste, really phasing out everything in our house that was single use um, within reason and replacing that with something that could be reused. Um, and I, and I really, found um a lot of you know my direction in that in in my life and it and I think it was bringing me closer to values that I had that I didn't know that I had and there is always a lot of you know you get um it makes you feel really good like the closer that your actual actions you know are in line with the the way your values and what you value in life the the better you feel about yourself and Mm -hmm. I got a lot Um, through that I realized that I didn't want to be treating you know the planet and like our septic ran into the paddock next to our house like I didn't want to be putting things down there down the toilet down the drain that were going to be seeping into the soils and affecting all the little insects and things and frogs that were might have been living there like and I just realized it just sort of dawned on me and I think it was probably harking back to having a childhood that is so in nature and you take it for granted and you um, you get a real connection to it and as a child and a child can probably do that very easily mm. and then the, as we grow up we get you know a wedge just driven in between us and you know the world around us you know we end up in shopping malls and out of pubs and we're in supermarket aisles and we're very disconnected from that and I think living there on the block in that little, you know, eco house and being and having like the trees and all the animals just right outside our window and my kids running around and I was just like, wow, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Like I'm meant to be showing them that we really have to look after that and we have to respect that because everything comes from the animals and the plants that we see around us and we mm-hmm. have to protect that. Um, so what are some of the things that you... Um, 
sort of do or use in your everyday family life that perhaps a lot of us don't do, but you think might be easy to make some changes for the better? Well, uh, I, I just, it is, it's easy if, um, if you're really in a place where you, you've got some values and you want to be living in line with that. Like, I feel like, okay, well, one of the easiest things to do is to expose yourself to nature is to do things that connect you with nature because everything flows on from that. It's like Mm. what's front Mm. of mind is what you're seeing all the time. So if you're not getting, if you're not getting into nature, you will really struggle to value that you value what, you know, you're exposed to and what mm. you do and what you see mm. and what you speak about. Mm. And so I, maybe that would be a big one. Um, some practical things around the house is, I like, I cannot stress to you how much we have overcomplicated cleaning and the germ, the whole germ thing. And, like, there is just a few base, in, simple ingredients that you can buy in bulk that aren't going to be, like, just wiping out all these little populations of microbes and um, insects and things that are really vital to all of the ecosystems that underpin us. Um, and and to, to look at some of those products for all, like a blanket across the home, like your hand, all your hand washes, which is just some soaps, some vinegar, um, rubbing alcohol, um, just given like COVID and everything yeah. just to make things look stronger and in the bathroom if you've got little kids and wee and just some rubbing alcohol and you can buy those things in bulk and um bicarb soda washing soda i think we've just marketing um and big business has got a hold of the whole cleaning thing and made us all feel that we need sterile conditions that they are good for us they are not only not good for us but they're terrible for Mm. like all the little animals around us and all the little plants um, and the, and in, in making your own, you can avoid so much single-use plastic, so much chemical pollution, so much waste. Um, and so I think that's probably if you just start on that, you'll mm. you'll see you'll see the potential, and you'll you'll kind of begin to see in other areas of your life like what you can do. But that'd be probably my main one. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I know now you have three children, and we'll get. We'll get to the the baby shortly, but um, I know you've used cloth nappies for all of your babies, and um, it's just your norm. So obviously, it's um, it's possible because you're sort of four or five years and counting. Oscar, I started him in um, disposables, and we just sort of fell into cloth a bit. Um, in the end, I think it was probably around the time when. We, we, you know, the house got hooked up to solar and I was looking at ways to reduce waste and the nappy bin in my house was horrific and I just was like, there has to be a better way than putting, like, this is when he was 18 months. So their poos start, start to become pretty serious, like adult poo and I'm just, like, piling them up in a corner of his room and leaving them there <laughs> and I was just like, okay, I just don't think that a pile of adult poo in the corner is good, a good idea. And, I mean, you, you should always actually put poo in the toilet. Like, you should never put it in the bin, even if it's a disposable, which I never knew until I started with cloth. So, anyway, I, I started with cloth um, and, like, tipping the poos in the in the toilet and um, 
just washing the nappies and I really loved that for the the not having the odour um, and not having the waste. Um, and I, I actually had a few false starts with that. Like I would go into them, I would come run into some trouble or have to troubleshoot something and maybe leave them for a while and then come back to them mm. until, you know, it, that you don't have to, like, it's not all or nothing. If, if, if you're at a point in your life where it's not going to be possible, you just, you just wash them and put them away. And then if it's something that's really important to you and, some, and, a, and a, an example that's really important for you to set to your kids that we don't just throw everything out, then you'll come back, you will come back to them. Mm. Um, and, and if it never, if, if it's you doing your, you're living in line with your values in other ways, then that's fine too. But yeah. for me, that's something that kept coming back to me. So I, in the end, I nailed it. But yeah, yeah. That's so good, Jin. Thank you. And I know um, that you've got a, a sort of blog website that you've used on and off over the years, which have a lot of, um, really useful information on there for people if they're wanting to think about doing things differently or um yeah wanting to learn about different ways that they can um affect or have a positive effect on the environment then there's lots of good tips that you share and practical things that you've you know tried and tested and things that you can share there um is that still in existence um, it is. I think like all of the information is still on there. That's Bush Bambinis. Um, and I, I, I don't actually haven't been on there a lot, like contributing to that part of it. I think my journalism's really ramped up in mm. recent times. Um, but I certainly did put a lot of things on there yeah. um, while I really, while I was going through that transition. Yeah. Moving away from a lot of the things that I had just taken, you know, traditionally used and thought that was the only thing that you do use, you know, like you just go to the supermarket and you buy your kitchen spray. It's like, well, actually you don't need all those things. Yeah. Yeah. You only need. Yeah. Well, that's given us lots to think about. Um, So can you tell me where you were married? In my mum's beautiful garden um, at our little hobby farm near Narrabri. Mm. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful day. Yeah. Um, mum put so much and we had a lot of help from friends and put a lot of effort into the garden. And, I mean, reason I originally thought that, you know, to have the wedding there was just a low-key sort of thing. But in the end, it actually was a whole lot of work for a whole lot of people. So we were very lucky that um, so many people could help us. Yeah. And it was just the loveliest day. Yeah. Um, and I remember you wore Reese's grandmother's wedding uh, wedding dress. Oh, yeah, I did. 60-something years old maybe at the time. Yes. Yeah. That's an important detail. Yeah. Yeah. It was special when I was after we got engaged um Peg Reese's grandma brought that dress out to me and she was like I'd already started looking at wedding dresses and I actually had my heart sort of set on this dress that I had found and um she's like look if you don't no pressure I just wanted to bring it out if you don't want to use it that's fine it's already been altered so when she wore it it was floor length um and when she brought it out to me it was more like just below the knees she was a little bit longer than that, like mid midi dress. Mm-hmm. And um, I 
I I was so touched that like she would um, offer that. It was very kind and it was very special. Like if you could wear, if you could in fact do like if I could in fact wear that, I tried it on. It was too small, and I was at that stage. I I actually thought that it was really it would have been a I it, the idea sort of grew on me until I was just set that that was what I was doing. And so I had the dress altered. Um, to fit me um, across the back, which made it a bit more backless than it mm-hmm. had been. And uh, a really talented dressmaker um, that lives out near Gurley and she and she just um, brought it up so that it was like a it was a more of a, a just above the knee little fun sort of garden party dress, mm. um, white, um, just cotton lace. There was no seams in it. Cotton uh, sort of a cut out lace design I don't know how you explain that I'm not yeah and that was Melinda O'Donoghue who did that and I remember I learnt later in the night at the wedding that it the length of the dress was actually all tacked up underneath still so she hadn't she didn't do much alteration somehow she it was an optical illusion and it was just perfect yeah mm. oh shit because in the end I was like I actually don't want to I don't want to ruin it like mm. if someone wants to take it back down to that length like someone mm. wants to use it up me, I want them to be able to do that mm. and um and there's not a seam in that dress and it was it, the way that she altered it, it fit me like a glove it was mm. yeah it was really fun to wear and so special mm. and also I didn't have to get a new dress made so yeah. it was eco-friendly <laughs> good for the environment that's yeah. right um, and I remember Alex was your maid of honour and, and your good friend from school, Mill, was a bridesmaid? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Those two girls by my side and that was, I mean, very special. Um, yeah, I couldn't have asked for more. Um, I know that that wasn't an easy event for Alex, you know, in hindsight and she just, you know, turned up and, did her best and you know it means it means more now were you aware that something wasn't right for Ali at that time or is it in years uh, since then that you've become aware that things were becoming really difficult for her oh in the lead up to the wedding I knew something was up I can't remember why I I think it mum went to Alex um she had overdosed um on some drugs and been hospitalized and mum was really trying hard to not you know was the lead up to my wedding to not you know upset me and take away from that really special time so she was really trying not to let on what had happened and I can't remember I think in the end I she did tell me but only because I really instinctively knew and it was kind of pissing me off that I could knew something was going on and no one would tell me. Mm. So mum told me in the end, um, she didn't tell me the extent of it. She said it was to do with the childhood sexual abuse. But in fact, in the weeks leading up to my wedding, um, my sister actually also disclosed a rape by another family member that happened later in her life and um, had become a significant trauma for her um, growing, uh, you know, going on, going forward. Um, and the trauma of having to see that person at my wedding really tipped her over the edge. Mm. We now, I now know, I didn't learn about the rape until two weeks before she died. 
Mm. So at that my wedding, I could not have appreciated what she was going through and the mm. strength that she must have had to find mm. within herself to actually show up. Because mm. um, she was living in Ballarat at the time that you were married. Um, who yeah. did she disclose to that something had happened like that? Well, her fiancé. Okay. Um, yeah. Old him and medical staff, a close friend and my mum. And mm. that all happened, you know, at the same time. Mm. But she she always felt because it was a family member, she didn't want to tell me because she knew that it would be, you know, a life-changing, deeply, like a deep sort of vicarious trauma, I guess you can, uh, to find that information out about someone that you know and love with all your heart. Um, she knew that what the ramifications for me would be. Mm. Um, so she always withheld that information in order to protect me and allow me to enjoy that family, all of the relationships that I could enjoy for all of that time mm. um, without knowing, you know, mm. that man had done to her. Mm. Um, and you've touched a little bit today about um, her childhood sexual abuse or, child, yeah, childhood sexual abuse. Um, was that something everybody was aware of, um, you know, for years or did it only become apparent in later years? Well, the other girls were aware of it. The the other girls that he had um, either abused or that that um, they knew had been abusing um, girls. It's it's kind of hard to explain because you yeah. can't disclose any of these yeah. women. But um, in the end, a lady that was pretty well a stranger to me walked up to my husband and asked him about it. And he told me that, and I was just like, well, I didn't know, I didn't know that other people knew. I, I thought that I was the only one, like, and you do think that because nobody talking about it creates the illusion that it's just you. Mm. And for him to come home and be like, you know, that this person knows. And I was just like, well, I barely know. Like, mm. I barely know what happened to me because I suppress, like I try not to think about it. And then that was the point where I had to go to mum and be like, well, okay, who else knows? Because this woman knows and I actually don't know her from a bar of soap. Was he, and, and then she, it sort of came out that he was widely known to be um, like seedy mm. and a creep mm. to women it was not widely known that he was a pedophile, um, but the, the girls who were also affected had an idea that Alex and I were affected because we spent so much time around there with our nan um, mm. and this man. Mm. And um, so in the end, that was the trigger for me to really see it for what it was. When I mm. suppose for 20, like, all my life since that happened, so for about 24 years, I had been trying to not, I did not identify it as sexual abuse mm. because that made it easier to live with. Um, I just thought that, you know, he didn't mean it, um, he was old and it wasn't what it was. Mm. And it wasn't until I tried to sort of explain to Reese, you know, we're married with two kids, 
like what had happened and it's out of my mouth and I can hear it and I know how bad it sounds because it is really bad Mm. and then you really accept that and and there are so many things that remain unresolved as long as you're not calling it what it is Mm. and you're not allowing it to be part of your experience and you're not you're not allowing those memories to come up long enough to examine them Mm. and figure out in your adult mind what this all means and what's Mm. happened to you and if you don't do that, I mean, some people might think that just to put it in a box and leave it there is working for them and good luck to them. But it certainly wasn't working for me. And in bringing these memories up, I was able to understand a lot about myself and the struggles that I do have. And that makes it easier being able to understand the why and the what happened and what makes you who you are. You're like, you can cut yourself some slack a bit, you know. Mm. And so that process happened at 28 years old and I'm now about to turn 30. Yeah. And so were you able to talk with Alex then um, now that you'd sort of realised that this was in fact what you were dealing with and what had happened to you many years prior and probably was the root cause of a lot of your own or your eating disorder perhaps and anxiety problems? Um, were you able to discuss that with Al and sort of check in with her about how she was coping with with what had happened yeah. to her as well by the same person? She would only ever talk about it over text message, which was fine, like, and good, if, if it, even in that capacity she could talk about it. Mm. And she was able to fill in a lot of my gaps in information that I had, like um, the ages we were... Um, what happened to her, which was repeated molestation because he was impotent. Um, he just used to come to us and, like, um, effectively, like, masturbate a little girl. Um, I don't remember if he, like, tried to masturbate himself or I, I still don't understand what you would get out of that on what planet anyone gets something out of that. But that was what happened to her and it was repeated um, for some years before she was old enough to start to evade him. And she just, I think she just got old enough where she thought, well, he's pretty old if I really tried to get away from him. But that is an exceptional thing for a child to do because the freeze response is a lot more um, children are a lot more predisposed to freeze because they're defenseless. So the flight response, while it took years for Alex to get that and to realise that she could run, um, is is quite amazing because mm. children, yeah, mm. are much more predisposed to just stop and just freeze, wait till it's over, and then try and get away. Mm. And so she used to take me with her because I would have been to that age where he would have started to take a liking to me and so she used to take me with her and I think like we just used to run out of the house Mm. Um, and she was able to tell me a lot of that and I think she had been waiting a long time to to tell me that she protected me because I think, you know. Yeah. That she did. Yeah. She tried hard. And and it might have been hard for her in, in the years since then. Perhaps she felt like she'd let you down or she didn't do a good enough job or 
that that's quite a weight and of course no, nobody would think that of her but you can see how um, if that is you that might be yeah. your your thought process um, and oh and a hundred percent though she did and mm. she and I think it was it was nice for me to learn that too as horrible as the situation was you know that she was able to do that yeah and then in the end she told mum when it started happening to me I don't know why she could never tell mum when it was just happening to her I think part of something in kids thinks that the adults know or that they'll get in trouble and I think that that's what stopped her because she was always such a well-behaved little girl like Mm. I think she didn't want to get in trouble or to do anything that would upset people. Mm. But when it started happening to me, that was it. Like she went to mum and she's like, granddad's been touching our private parts because mm. that's what we called it. Mm-hmm. And mum went straight over there and she, and she's, you know, she stopped it. Um, and I think a lot, that's a lot more than a lot of parents that have been put in that position can say because to believe, you know, your child straight up, to act on it like a lot of parents in that situation and let's not shift blame like the blame is with the you know the perpetrator but a lot of parents in that situation don't know what to do with that information and they they might try and tell the child that it didn't happen or to not tell anyone because it'll upset everybody and mum did none of that she took us to to counsellors she she confronted um our, our step-grandfather and she thought she made it stop Mm. Um, so, I mean, I have learning that from mum at age 28, I got a lot of closure from that mm. to know what she had done. And I think Alex, cause she could never talk really to mum about it in detail and ask her these things like, what did you do? Who knew? What did Nan know? Like mum did, uh, Alex did bring it up once with mum room like she sort of didn't want to be there but she would come back and sort of listen then she you know she was very she was a bit like a pinball that day like she was sort of drifting in and out and I could see that this was happening and I was sort of asking her mum things on Alex's behalf like did you know it happened to Alex for years like and mum sort of like no I didn't and Mm. I wasn't I wasn't like attacking mum I was just like what is going on here like why did I not know who knew why does this woman just come up to my husband and I wasn't mad at that lady mm. I just didn't know such public like in the public domain and probably it wasn't still like that woman was in a great like a huge position of confidence with his other victims that's the only reason she knew but they'd obviously talked about us and thought yeah oh, I wonder what them sort of thing yeah Please look out for part two of Virginia's story. And if you enjoyed this episode or something resonated with you, I'd love it if you could share with your friends and leave a review. Thank you.